welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Welcome back to Clean Tech Talks. I'm your host, Michael Bernard. This is the second half of my conversation with Paul Martin, chemical process engineering and co-founder of the Hydrogen Science Coalition, bringing a evidence-based perspective to the hydrogen discussion and our future decarbonized economy. Let's just do a quick comparison. Do you, I mean, I, I knew that I could ask you this question and you'd have a really good answer. I, I think about the end-to-end diffusivity variance between natural gas, because you think about it, like all the way from that transmission pipeline through a, a, a central place that puts it into a bunch of other smaller pipes, which go through urban areas, which goes into people's homes. The variance in diffusivity means there's going to be an awful lot more leakage. Do you know? Do you oh, know, yeah. What's the variance? I mean, how much more do you have a good way to explain that? Well, you, you kind of wouldn't. There's the there's the trick. You, you wouldn't just tolerate it. So in certain materials, you would. So for instance, a, a lot of the piping that's provided in, in the modern era, like the pipes out, outside my home that carry natural gas to my, my home here, they were recently installed and they were installed to replace cast iron pipe, which is very brittle and used to break all the time in the winter. The coldest day of the winter, pipes would break and you'd smell natural gas and you'd have to call the gas utility and they come and dig it up. Uh, actually, you wouldn't cold. smell the natural gas, you'd smell the additive that makes it. Yeah, you'd smell the odorant. That's correct. Yes. You smell the thiol that they add, the captain that they add to, to give it an odor. And anyway, the, the pipes that have been replaced are now polyethylene. Mm-hmm. And polyethylene is very corrosion resistant. So it's great that yep. way. And it's totally immune to hydrogen embrittlement. So that's yep. also good. But hydrogen diffuses right through it, like at a known rate. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you, you, you can use it acknowledging the fact that you will be losing hydrogen at a considerable rate right through the intact wall yeah, this of, is a- of, of that piping. This now, how, something mu- how much, how much well, depends that? on the pressure. So, so I did a bunch of stuff on uh, shipping hydrogen recently. Oh, yeah. It was quite yeah. good. Yeah. Thank you. And you added to my knowledge on that. So, <laughs> so just talking about this, like what I did was I, I said, okay, so we're going to take a liquid natural gas carrier. And I took a, a big one, one of the biggest mm-hmm. ones that's out there. And I said, okay, well, how much equivalent energy can you put into the same place? And how much more... Do, Hydrogen, in order to be, you know, chronically compressed, needs to actually needs a lot more energy than natural gas because it has a much lower point at which it turns into a liquid. So you have to put a lot more energy or take a lot more energy out in order to get it to liquefy. And then vastly, yeah. vastly more. And then when you put it into a tanker, it off gases. You know, the LNG standard is 0.1% per day. And I just not thinking that hydrogen is going to survive, get that. I mean, NASA did a study where they actually got it to persist for an extended period of time, but that was on land for an inc- with incredible amounts of effort and Peyton, you know, you know, I think Brayton cycle refrigeration stuff. And just I, can none- give you a, I can give you a hard figure on that one. 
So yeah. this is from a reference. I, I recently developed a course, a 10 hour course related to hydrogen, all matters associated yep. with hydrogen. You were grumpy when, you know, cause you were like, I was very overcommitted. <laughs> I was very grumpy because I'd overcommitted and it was forcing me to stretch my brain and learn things and look <laughs> things up and find the reference that I see. I have a, I have a mind like a trap for certain things, but if I don't write the reference down or put it in a, a drop the link and I've started to be more disciplined, I have to drop the link into a document so I can keep track of it for future. I, I had to find the links for things that I knew. I just didn't know how yeah. I knew them or from where I, I found them. So anyway, one of the, one of the uh, pieces that I got was very, very well constructed, very, very large, vacuum insulated gas spheres for the purposes of storing liquid hydrogen have been constructed. Mm -hmm. And this is a problem that fundamentally gets worse the smaller the container is, because it stands mm -hmm. to reason that as a container gets smaller, the surface area to volume ratio gets worse. You get more surface area per unit of volume stored and heat I, transfer depends. I don't on think surface. we've actually used the words boiling off or defined boiling off. So why don't we start there? Let's start with that. Yeah. So, so if you, if you have a gas that's stored as a liquid and it's held as a liquid, not as, not as a result of enormous pressure, but rather by keeping it cold and keeping it at a lower pressure, then that cryogenic liquid, that ultra cold liquid that you have, if heat leaks in, the only way that that system, that, that liquid in the tank can, can maintain its pressure is to vent gas and the heat that's put in has to vaporize liquid. And that's, that's called boil off. So with liquefied natural gas, with liquefied refrigerated ammonia or ref, uh, liquefied refrigerated uh, hydrogen. The, the, op, the options with uh, natural gas and with ammonia are to run some compression equipment and cool the liquid again, you know, take the gas, cool it down and then put it back as liquid into the tank in order to minimize how much you, you lose by boiling off. But the problem with hydrogen is that the refrigerant cycle that's necessary to make hydrogen as a liquid is really, really challenging and energy intensive. And as a consequence, you really aren't going to be building a little hydrogen refrigerator, refrigerator that makes liquid hydrogen to take the hydrogen that wants to boil off and cool it down again and shove it back into the tank. So with hydrogen, as I mentioned, if you're going to store it as a liquid, the best thing to do is to make the tank as big as you possibly can. So think of a gargantuan spherical tank mm -hmm. that's vacuum insulated so that it's got the very best ability to, to reject heat from the outside. And it's got a very favorable surface area to volume ratio. Even when you build those giant tanks, the boil off rate is 0.2% per day, yep. per day. And that's, what I, uh, that's what I calculated in my, uh, in my article. And it's basically for the trip, it's like 5% loss of all hydrogen for an average oceanic journey. And, and a 0.2% per day vessel would be hard to construct to, to go on a ship. Mm -hmm. So the real ship ones are probably going to be worse than 0.2%. Oh, my goodness. 
And and the and if you scale this down now to the size of a truck, so now we have a, a class eight tractor trailer with a tank on it as big as you can fit. Yep. That thing, because now it's a cylinder, which is less favorable than a sphere from a surface area to volume ratio, and it's smaller. So the surface area to volume ratio is unfavorable because it's smaller. Now you're talking about 1% per day. Mm-hmm. And, and it doesn't take very many days before you don't have any hydrogen left. And, and then we can talk about hydrogen storage tanks at, you know, for example, somebody keeps saying, we're going to put, you know, we talk, you know, Bernard Van Dyke mentioned, you know, you mentioned him and hydrogen for aviation. I've certainly gone deep and wide on that. But a hydrogen storage at an airport you know, and, you know, because hydrogen for aviation would have to be chilled and compressed, mm-hmm. right? And so you've got the liquid same lossage. Yeah, liquid, liquid, liquid is your only option. And so really what you're talking about, if you were to do hydrogen for aircraft, which is nuts, but if you were to do it, you would have to have a hydrogen liquefaction plant at every airport. That's yep. the only way that's feasible. You certainly could not have a centralized facility making liquid hydrogen and then trucking it or carrying it by pipeline or anything else like that to multiple different airports. You would need to make hydrogen either locally or close enough that you could carry it by pipeline. And then you would have to liquefy it at every airport. And the infrastructure cost associated with that is mind boggling. It's just madness. But there's an even trickier thing. It's even worse than that. Oh my goodness. It just gets, the more you dig, the worse it it gets. (laughs) Hydrogen has this pernicious additional problem that other molecules don't have. And that is that ordinary hydrogen that you might make at room temperature, for instance, by electrolysis, it has, uh, each hydrogen atom has has uh, uh, an electron spin. And the, the spins are referred to as either ortho where they're pointed they're both pointed in the same direction or para where one spin is pointed down and the other is pointed up and it turns out that the ratio between ortho and para is different at room temperature than it is when you when you cool it down and the transition from ortho to para and i believe it's para is the one that's more stable is exothermic so when you're liquefying, what you have to do is at each step, you have to pass the hydrogen through a catalyst that converts the ortho to para in order to release that heat so that the next step can remove that heat. Because otherwise, what they found, and this was quite interesting, that when they originally made liquid hydrogen, they made liquid hydrogen, they all, look, we made liquid hydrogen. And then they came back the next day and they looked in the doer and it was gone. And they said, hold on a second, the heat leakage through our doer isn't that bad. It couldn't have all evaporated. Where did it go? Well, it turned out that the, 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 spin, the spin interconversion heat release was enough to boil off all of the hydrogen. <laughs> so they, they had to discover this thing, the spin, uh, spin isomerization yeah. thing and a catalyst <laughs> in order to, to, to make it, uh, to, to change it, to make it happen so that you could actually have a liquid that you could store for any appreciable amount of time. So the more you look at hydrogen liquefaction, yeah, but if, that- to, to pull it back up a bit, if you ship hydrogen, you're losing 0.2 to 1% a day. If you just in boil off, yeah. just in boil off and 30% then, just to make a liquid. out. Yeah. You've got to, the, all the energy that's in the volume of hydrogen that you've got, it takes 30% to turn that into a liquid, which yeah. is a lot. 
just because you have to make it so cold. What's the what's the liquefaction point for hydrogen Minus gas? Minus two hundred and forty nine degrees C, which is twenty four Kelvin, twenty four degrees above absolute zero. That's really chilly. I mean, that's chilly for a Canadian winter. Uh, the, the only thing colder, the only thing colder than that is liquid liquid helium, and and in fact, helium refrigerators are used as part of the cycle to make uh, hydrogen at small scale, liquid hydrogen at small scale. So, uh, yeah, it's nuts. But you know, so we we lose energy there. We lose energy all the way through there. When you pipe it, it embrittles the pipes so that it reduces their lifetime, and it creates. And it creates or you packs. have to use different metals to make the pipes. Right? You have to replace all the pipes. Yeah. And you're going to end up reusing any of the existing infrastructure. It's going to be leaking. And as, you, as soon as you start pumping it into people into distribution networks to go to people's homes, it's diffusing through whatever is there, whether it's old or new. And when you get into people's homes, then it starts leaking inside people's homes. So there's it's a, got a global warming potential of five as well. So it's, it's five times as bad as, as uh, CO2 when you leak it. So you don't want to leak it because it's expensive, but you also don't want to leak it because it's a, it's a greenhouse gas. It, here's an interesting question. I mean, because it's a, it's a flammable gas, which in an enclosed space, if lit in the presence of oxygen, would create sufficient stuff, I assume, to potentially create an explosion, just as liquid natural gas does. Yeah. And, and so I, I was thinking about leaking of natural gas inside a house which is going to be much more common because it's so much, it diffuses through every, it's it just, it's an escape artist. It's the Houdini of molecules. It really is. And so you're going to end up with hydrogen inside your home, which is an odorless gas, which you won't notice. And then in the presence of a spark, all of a sudden you've got the potential for an explosion. Mm -hmm. uh, more, and it, you know, the way I described this particular problem, I said, natural gas appliances don't blow up because we've had, a hundred years of building natural gas appliances, having them blow up and slowly but surely devolving the standards and processes. And they're, because natural gas is a convenient, easily transported thing with relatively stable characteristics, we could make a safe enough appliance for home use, especially compared to what we had before, which was killing people more regularly. Natural gas is much better than its precursors. It yes, sucks, yeah, but it, it sucks, but it's better than what it replaced. That's right. Um, yeah. And you know, and so as I think about hydrogen, we're just at the start of that process, and there's no guarantee, to my in my mind, that we'll actually get to the point where it's possible to, in any sense, manufacture inexpensively appliances which can go into people's homes or buildings, which will actually work safely as safely as liquid natural as natural gas appliances today. I, I agree with you. And there are a couple other problems. So one of them is that it takes three times as much energy to move a joule of energy in the form of hydrogen as it does to move a joule of energy in the form of natural gas. And that arises from that large volume. When yep. you look at the physics, when you look at the thermodynamics, it takes three times as much energy to compress that much gas. And that's what that's that's the energy that's used to move it is the is pressure energy that's lost through frictional loss in pipes. So you, you, it's much more expensive to move. You have to replace all the compressors because they have to be much larger and much more powerful, three times as powerful. And then when you get into homes, now you've got the leakage problem. But in addition to the leakage problem, not only is it, does it find its way through tinier cracks and is it more readily diff, uh, diffusing right through materials, but the other problem with hydrogen 
is twofold. One of them is it has a very wide explosive range, much mm-hmm. wider than natural gas. So uh, the lower explosive limit of natural gas of, of methane is about 6% by volume with hydrogen is about 4%. That doesn't sound like it's a whole lot different, but the upper explosive limit of hydrogen is 75%. So it's very- Compared to natural air, gas? Nat- I forget what natural gas's upper explosive limit is, but I'll tell you, it's an awful lot lower than 75%. So what that's saying is that a gas mixture that's mostly hydrogen with only a little bit of oxygen in it is still explosive. <laughs> and that's, that's quite worrisome because although the gas is very diffusive and so concentrations of it will disperse more readily than, than they will of natural gas or propane. Propane is particularly bad because it's denser than air. And so yeah. you shouldn't really be using I mean, propane inside your home. Don't, you know, it's possible, but it's bad news. It's really scary. Well, uh, as people discovered in Texas in February, when they pulled out the propane heaters and gave themselves carbon monoxide poisoning, hundreds of people with long-term health problems, sir. Yeah, no kidding. It's bad news on a lot of levels, but as I mentioned, it's twofold with, with the hydrogen. Not only is the, the leakiness and diffusiveness in the broad explosive range a problem, but if you are making hydrogen, generally you want to, if, if you have a distribution network that carries hydrogen, there are going to be some people on that network that have fuel cells because that's one of the big putative benefits of, of hydrogen is that you can feed it to a fuel cell and make electricity. And anything, pretty much anything that you would use to make hydrogen smelly enough that you would notice it when it leaks is going to kill a fuel cell. I was going it's to wonder about that. Yeah, the catalyst in the fuel how cell. will the odorant work? But yeah, well, the, yeah, the, odorant the, is something that will make fuel cells problematic. So how do you, what do you do with that? What do you do with it? Yeah, it's, I don't think they're actually, I, I know there are odorants that work that you can, that don't react with hydrogen. The normal ones that you would put in natural gas, you can't use because they react with hydrogen. So you can't use mercaptan styles, this sort of thing. So that, that means that the, for 20% of hydrogen in pipelines, they have to replace all the odorants as well. Oh, I don't, I don't know that for sure. I, I, I think, I think look you can, you can probably crank more odorant in and get away with it. But I, I, but I do know that when you're working with pure hydrogen, that you can't just chuck mercaptans in there and get away with it. Uh, and the mercaptans are deadly to fuel cells, so that you know there's no way you're going to use mercaptans either way. But my understanding is that there is they haven't discovered an odorant that fits all that ticks all the boxes. It has to mm. be low in toxicity. It has to be quite smelly, so you can smell it at the lower concentration. You know, 50% lower uh, for hydrogen than for natural gas. So it has to be even smellier than the ones we're using now, really to be effective. It can't react with hydrogen and it can't destroy fuel cell catalysts. And I don't think there is one yet. I don't think they found one probably because there might not be one, yeah. but anyway, they, the, that's a, that's a bit of a long list of stuff to achieve. Yeah, it's tough. And so I, I'm just going to say there's, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of engineers out there happily having a really fun time with the intellectual challenges of making any of this work. Oh yeah. Appropriately. Oh yeah. And I was one of them, Michael. I was one of them. I was one of them. I don't know if I told you this story, but I'll, for the, I'll tell the listeners the story for their, for their edification and amusement that back in the late nineties, I was involved through my, my employer in a project first originally for Texaco and then later for Chevron after Chevron purchased Texaco. And we were trying to make hydrogen 
small hydrogen appliances. So they were going to, they, these were devices that were going to make hydrogen from natural gas using autothermal reforming. And the idea was that we were going to make hydrogen that was suitable for use in fuel cells. First, it was going to be for vehicles. And then later that was given up on and it was going to be for combined heat and power at home. So you, you would run a fuel cell in your home, it would make your electricity and the waste heat you would use to heat your house when you needed to. And we engineers, we were having a whale of a time working yeah. on this problem. It's intellectually very interesting and challenging. And so we would work all day long, very earnestly. And then we'd go, they were flying me down to, to Houston sometimes, you know, once every couple of weeks to, to work on this project. And we were, my company was building test stands for these little autothermal reformer reactors that they were developing the catalysts for and make, making sure that they lasted and that they worked and so on. And anyway, we were working away on this problem. And then we'd all go to some bar in Houston and have dinner. And after a couple shiner box, you know, the truth, the, after pouring a little truth serum down our throats, uh, inevitably the truth would come out and somebody would, somebody would say, you, you realize this is all horseshit, right? <laughs> like, and everybody would go, yep, pure unmitigated horseshit. The thermodynamics had just got awful and there's no way to fix it. And the, everybody would laugh and, you know, kind of say, oh yeah, think about it this way, think about it that way. None of this makes any sense. And then everyone would say, and tomorrow we'll be back at it again, giving it our best college try. And, but you know, the, the, a lot of engineers, you have, I, I'll make a comparison. So as you know, I spent a lot of time looking at aerospace in the past six months or so and yeah. got a lot of attention for that stuff I, I did on the loss of value in the urban air mobility, electric vertical takeoff and landing space was, you know, quite good. But that was, I was a little boy. Hey, the emperor is not wearing any clothes. <laughs> Everybody's addicted to hopium here. What's going on? <laughs> but in that space, what I discovered Previously in 2012 through 2014, I'd kind of gone deep and wide on airborne wind energy because I'd been hearing about it for 20 years. And I said, okay, it's time for me to go look at this because I know a lot about wind energy. Let's see if tethered kite type devices actually have any viability. And so I went and looked at all the different examples of them. I went, oh, well, that has this problems. And I, every one I looked at had significant problems. And I ended up getting pissing a bunch of people off in the in the space including a nassau guy and you know because i was no clothes and they were they'd spent like in some cases five or ten years on airborne wind energy and here was this guy who wasn't in the space saying and then i published this very specific here's all the five major engineering choices you have to make and they give you these advantages but they also give you these disadvantages and i published a viability assessment which says it's not viable and now McCanny has gone by the wayside and stuff like that. So then I got into the electric vertical takeoff and landings uh, space. And you know what I found? A lot of the same aerospace engineers that have been doing airborne wind energy moved into the electric vertical takeoff and landing space. Yep. It was a pattern. It was a oh, yeah. real pattern. The same engineers who, and one guy I talked to, he used to run McCanny, great guy. He said, you know, I, I was doing the job. And I, I, I was trying to have these internal conversations and saying, and I couldn't get through to people. And, but you know, you're being paid to achieve a certain outcome. So you keep going. And now he's, you know, out of both of those spaces and he's trying 
to move into a space where you can actually deliver a product of value. But it's easy. I mean, and I'm a nerd. You give me an interesting problem. Oh, yeah. I, I will sink my teeth into that interesting problem. And Absolutely. Sure. And, and you know, Michael, if it was all private money that was being expended on neat ideas that, you know, technical people thought was cool enough that they could convince people with money to part with their money to, to study, I'd say, oh, you know, that's your great. Boots. Go for it. Have fun. It's, it's the best. But we have two things wrong with this situation. One of them is most of it is not private money. It's public money that we're talking about here in this hydrogen space. And the other is we've got this crushing problem of actual decarbonization that we're not earnestly solving. And so money that could be spent on earnestly solving the problem of using technology that we know about, that we know works. We're not spending it on that. We're spending it on this on the emperor's new clothes that that no one can see. And the, the the thing that drives me completely around the twist about this this whole hydrogen hopium epidemic is that in fact it's not earnest. There are let's 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 be clear. There are some people who are very earnestly pursuing hydrogen because they believe and you know. People are in, entitled to look at data and draw their own conclusions from it, and and I don't have to agree with them all uh, all the time, and that's okay. But there are people who earnestly believe that green hydrogen has a future as a fuel, and I I do not believe that that's the case, and I think the evidence points away from that very strongly. But there are people who earnestly believe that. But the thing is, they're not the ones that are pushing it. Those people, I've, I'm very impolite, and I refer to them as the useful idiots. So, you know, back in the Soviet in the Soviet era, in the Cold War era, the Soviet apparatus referred to socialists in Western countries as useful idiots, mm-hmm. meaning that they were they were people that, for their own reasons, may have wanted things that were. Uh, that were uh, somewhat aligned with what the Soviets wanted. But they, the Soviets didn't care about that. They were useful, even though they were not, you know, they, they weren't doing anything that furthered their own aims. They were furthering the aims of the, of, of the Soviets and the Soviets viewed them as, as useful idiots. They, they well, we don't have to go be- back far. We don't have to go back to the previous century. We can go back to 2016. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so, so the, so, the hydrogen push is it's being furthered by the fossil fuel industry and by its useful idiots. And so the fossil fuel industry's interest in hydrogen is very clear. I mean, Michael Liebreich said it better than I think anyone has said it since. The way he said it is that for, for the fossil fuel industry, hydrogen is a no-lose bet. I mean, either they push hydrogen and the, the future hope of hydrogen as a fuel delays decarbonization and hence the fossil fuel industry wins Mm -hmm. or they get dragged the fossil fuel industry gets dragged into the future of energy supply in a decarbonized future by virtue of billions or tens or hundreds of billions of dollars going into building hydrogen ready infrastructure and build and paying them to make so-called blue hydrogen plants and they get dragged by force of public money into a decarbonized future and they win. 
So yeah, let's let's take a specific example. Let's, we're in Canada, so we'll and we'll pick on Suncor and Atco this Perfect. time, Perfect. right? Because Suncor and Atco earlier last year announced that they had a proposal for a, another blue hydrogen plant. You know, so make hydrogen from natural gas and capture the CO two and put it back underground. And they're going to put right. it in the same place, roughly as the existing carbon capture and storage thing, about twenty five kilometers from Edmonton, mm-hmm. and. Of course, there are three or four things about this facility they proposed. The first is it w- all the hydrogen was going to go into the refineries in, in Edmonton to be used for you know, hydrogen processing of fossil fuels to desulfurize them and stuff like that. And so is this actually a beneficial climate thing when it's being used to make more fossil fuels? Probably not. Thing two, it was very much a case where they said, well, we, we have proposed this to the federal government. And if you, if they give us $1.3 billion for this one facility to desulfurize and treat and hydro treat fossil fuels in one major refinery globally, then we'll do it. And so it was very much a cap in hand type of thing. And, you know, they're not going to do it. Otherwise they're not going to do it because it's just adds expensive no value. Now, of course, as you and I have discussed before, you know, the uh, Alberta's crude is sour. It's very high sulfur. And as we've discussed before, it's going to be the first off the market as, as we achieve peak oil and gas demand. It's going to be the first off the market because it's, too, it's a, one of the most expensive to extract and process. It's far from water and it's sour. Uh, I, th- I think you saw the article I, I, I published about the oil and gas analyst who said the current quality you know, challenge, there's a $21 gap between Brent crude price and Alberta's price. And $14 of that was because it was sour. Yeah. Only seven bucks was travel. Right. And so, you know, part of the discussion is you and I have debated a few times. We're trying to, I'm trying to project out a reasonable projection of how much, how much refinery space will be used and how much oil and gas oil will be going into refineries around 2100. Yep. And then how much hydrogen would actually be required in refineries for the subset of the 20% of a barrel, which are actually high value chemicals, which we cannot displace with other feedstocks. And your yep. points are very good and very apt there. And the con- counter is that we won't be using, we'll be using very sweet crude that's close to water, mostly local to where it's being manufactured because of the uh, transportation premium, but we'll still need hydrogen there. Yeah, it, it won't agree. be zero. It'll be somewhere between my original number and my end number. So I got to do version three of the hydrogen demand projection to figure that out. And yeah, what, what I, I, I did, I only did the Fermi level estimate on that, Michael. And what, what I all I did is I said, right now we're using about forty million tons of hydrogen a year in refineries. Yep. Round numbers. It's about forty million tons, and of that forty million tons, a good chunk of it comes out of petroleum. So, uh, for instance, one of the processes that we do right now with great gusto is we take straight chain hydrocarbons and we curl them around on themselves and we take a bunch of hydrogens off them to make aromatics, to make rings, mm-hmm. benzene rings. Yep. And that's very useful, not just for chemicals, but largely as an octane increaser in, in, um, in fuels. And when we do that, we're taking hydrogens off. And of those course, hydrogen- if we're making octane increasers for fuels, we're going to stop doing that too. That's right. Well, now we'll, we'll still cyclize and dehydrogenate in order to make aromatics, but that's okay. The point is that 
what we won't do is the, uh, is, is the other side of it, which is take that hydrogen that we just made and use it to desulfurize a bunch of stuff just so that we can burn it. So when you take the 40 million tons and you figure that somewhere between 15 and 25% of a barrel is used for anything other than burning, and the, the range of 15 to 25% depends on where and what the crude source is and, and what the local demand is and how much, what natural gas costs and a million other things, but somewhere in that range. To a first approximation of the 40 million tons of hydrogen we use right now, we're, we're not going to use more than 10. So I said, okay, let's, let's imagine that it's 10. Whether it's 5 or 10 doesn't matter to me. It makes no difference. I'm only doing this at the Fermi level. Yeah. So the point is that I, I think that the demand, uh, and, and that, by the way, that 30 million tons, 40 minus 10, is a quarter of world hydrogen production. Mm-hmm. A quarter of it will go away just as a result of us not burning fossils as fuels anymore. And yep. that's the best news I've heard all day. And then when you look at all the other ones, ammonia, methanol, and, and so on, direct reduction of iron, some of those are going to go up. Some of them are going to go down. Some of them are going to stay the same. And where they go will depend on policy, carbon prices, location, all those other things. But I do agree with you that when the future comes to pass, the future that I earnestly want, ultimately comes to pass and and we stop burning fossils as fuels we reduce and then eventually don't don't do it anymore uh we will necessarily economically choose the the low lift cost light sweet stuff to make our chemicals from we won't be using athabasco bitumen for anything Mm-hmm. maybe road roofing tar. well that's the question right I mean, uh, this is actually something that occurred to me as i went through this because Asphalt is waste byproducts from refineries, as yep. is bunker fuel. Yeah, you know, you know. yeah, as is bunker fuel. And this is a mystery. This is a great mystery. And I, I, my my readership on LinkedIn is quite large. And some very clever people there, but still, no one has spilled the beans to me about what what's going on there. Because in 2020, the rules changed about ship fuel. In the old days, you could burn like pre 2020. As long as you were more than 100 miles away from land, you could burn basically liquid coal. So when you, when, you, when you start with petroleum and you distill off all the good stuff, what you're left with is this crud that doesn't boil even when you drop the pressure to a, almost a thousandth of an atmosphere and you heat it up to 300 degrees C. So <laughs> when the pressure is one torr, so it's under pretty hard vacuum and the temperature is 300 degrees C, whatever doesn't boil is called residuum or resid. Okay. And resid has four things that it's used for. One of the things that it's used for is to feed devices that are called cokers. Mm -hmm. And what cokers are, they're they're a, a device where you heat, heat up this residuum in a flash furnace, and then you bung it into a drum, a giant drum, like 70 feet in diameter, 150 feet tall, and you let it fall apart thermodynamically. And it kind of goes half to coke and half to lighter stuff that you can make fuels out of or do whatever you're going to do with. And that's obviously not a very appealing process because half this half that's coke is basically worthless. It's, it's, you can get people to buy it from you, but it, 
they're not paying much more than the cost of transportation. So it's not a good process. Only about half of your stuff turns into good stuff and the other half is a waste. People don't want to do it, but if you have to get rid of it, it's a way to, it's a garburator, right? Yep. Uh, so, so there's cokers. There's a much more expensive process by which you try to, with heat and hydrogen and catalysts, to break up those big molecules into smaller ones. And that's called extinction hydrocracking. Mm. And it, what you do is you, you use the best catalysts and very, very high pressures of hydrogen and high temperatures, and you beat the devil out of the molecules. And whatever you can get to turn into something good, you distill off. And what's left behind is this terrible, horrible goo that they call uh, cracker bottoms. And that stuff is like the worst of the worst. But anyway, it's most of it goes to light stuff and you get about maybe 10% cracker bottoms. Uh, but people don't want to build those because of course they're very, very expensive to build. Mm -hmm. And again, you're only that stuff that's coming off is only really useful as a fuel. So we've got cokers and extinction hydrocrackers and nobody's been building lots of either of those in the past 10 years. Okay. The other two uses are road and roofing tar. So asphalt to make asphalt concrete and ship fuel. And in 2020, you were no longer allowed to burn that stuff as ship fuel because it was three and a half percent sulfur. And the rule says now, whatever you burn has to be less than half a percent sulfur, even if you burn it at sea, you know. In oh, gee, why would that be? Simply because, oh, acid rain? Yeah, well, oh my goodness. And you, I mean, one of these container ships emits as much SOX and NOX as a million cars. Yep. So we're not talking about small amounts of SOX and NOX. We're talking about giant quantities here. So this was a rule that had to happen. And it was a good, good rule to put in place. But here's the mystery, Michael. What happened to the resid? Because the resid that used to go into ship fuel can't go into ship fuel anymore. Oh, it, it can't with air quotes. It can't because you can't blend away the sulfur. Okay. You, you, like if you, if you were to make a mixture of three and a half percent residuum with perfect diesel that had, you know, that you'd hydro treated to death and had no sulfur left in it, you would be left with mostly diesel to achieve this half yeah. a percent sulfur. So you can't blend it away. Resid and ship fuel was the place that you used to blend all the other bad stuff. Mm -hmm. That's where you sent all of the bad stuff was into ship fuel. And you're not allowed to anymore. But the mystery is the resid didn't appear as a glut on the market. And I have customers that were expecting that to happen. And they had technology waiting in the wings that they were, well, actually they were working on very hard to, to exploit, to develop, which was going to take advantage of the fact that the ship fuel guys couldn't burn the three and a half percent sulfur stuff anymore. And they had processes by which you could take the three and a half percent sulfur and make less than half percent sulfur out of it uh, with other benefits. And the glut never appeared. So where's it going? And no one can explain it to them. It's not like, oh, you dumb guy that doesn't understand refineries. You, you don't understand that they're, they're doing this now. And that's why there's no glut. So I'm a skeptical guy. And when I see money, the potential for money to be made by people breaking rules that other people aren't enforcing because it's happening way out at sea, I suspect 
I don't have any proof of this, but I suspect there's an awful lot of burning of three and a half percent sulfur resid at sea still. Mm-hmm. And some ships are permitted to burn it still. So it's still available to purchase. But if, if you are going to burn it in your ship, you have to have scrubbers. And scrubbers is kind of loose because what these scrubbers <laughs> I, do. Having spoken to a guy who does build scrubbers for the shipping industry, um, mostly they make black smoke white. Well, they, what, they, what they are basically. <laughs> Aesthetically Michael, is, pleasing, but not necessarily chemically all that much better. They're, they're toilets is yeah. what they are. So what they do is they, so the SOX and the NOX come out of the ship's funnel and they go in the atmosphere and they spend some time in the atmosphere and maybe they diffuse away to land where people breathe it and that's bad, right? But by and large, precipitation drags the SOX and the NOX into the ocean and they end up in the ocean where they cause acidity in the ocean, which isn't great, but CO2 is way worse than that. So yeah. let's, let's be real. But the point is that what these scrubbers do on, on the big, uh, big container ships is they just take seawater and contact the exhaust with it to short circuit the trip of those baddies into the ocean. So they make, they make that happen faster. So it's not as much happening. They're called open loop scrubbers. They don't actually remove the materials and then put them in some form where they can be properly disposed of somewhere. No, they just flush them into the ocean. So they're, they're, they're toilets. They're exhaust yeah. toilets. It's, it's, oh. it's, it is fascinating. The, um, and certainly, you know, these ships, as they transit, are in transit on average, as I discovered recently, for 23 days is the average ship duration. But even under the EU right now, the EU is under fire because they are making, they're basically applying new rules to shipping in the EU area. And it only applies to 50% of the ships. And it explicitly, ex- the, the proposal explicitly ex- excludes all the vessels which service the oil and gas industry. <laughs> you just kind of sit there and go, wait a minute. Well, Wait Michael, a minute. I, I love the fact. I love the fact that you called what Maersk was doing for what it is. I, I was very pleased to see your article on that topic, because I've long been of the opinion that whatever decarbonizes transoceanic shipping is going to be the last thing, and and the reasons are really straightforward. The cost per ton mile of sea freight is between 40 and 60% fuel cost. And mm-hmm. that's using unabated fossils, the cheapest fuels you can buy, like the bottom of the barrel, like I yeah, the resid, basically. Exactly. And despite the fact that they're using basically liquid coal as their fuel, the cost per ton mile of sea freight is still 40 to 60% fuel. The rest of it pays for the ship and the crew and the, and the light, right? And, and they've already automated the ships to hell. There's minimum, by, by historical standards, it's skeleton crews. And they're not going to, I was thinking through this, they're not going to completely automate away the crews because of liability requirements. They have to have an, a throat to choke. And, no. and they're, they're slow steaming now in order to, to uh, so they make those 24-day trips, 30-day trips now yep. or, or more in order to conserve fuel, which is very good, but yep. they're, they're doing everything that they can in order to try to keep the, the cost down because they're a cost-driven business because 40 to 60% of their cost is fuel. Now imagine, Mike, imagine for a moment a world in which people that are buying sea freight 
voluntarily accept massive increases in the cost of sea freight just because, just um, to make it greener. This okay? is actually the, uh, a point that I was, because before Christmas, I finally got into my projection of global shipping tons. And I accidentally backed into creating a meme, um, <laughs> um, which is making a bunch of people happy. Like Bill McKibben, I don't think he realized he was quoting me, but he quotes, he, he actually links to my articles in his weekly blogs quite regularly. But um, he's you know, tweeted recently, I had one of the best pieces of news I've heard in months, which is that 40% of all shipping is shipping oil, coal, and natural gas. Oh, wow. 40%. And then 40%. there's another 15%, which is iron ore. And so as you kind of like look at those shipping volumes, and these are millions of tons shipping volumes, you say, well, by 2100, there are three or four factors that are going to occur. One of them is shipping costs are going to increase for fuel. A lot. A lot. No matter what we do, they're going to increase. Yep. Two, we're not going to be shipping oil, coal, and natural gas. Hopefully not. We'll be shipping a lot less. Of, yes. Yeah. Three, the increase in costs of shipping mean that we're probably not going to be shipping nearly as much iron ore as well. Depending that that's tricky. So the good news is that one of the big iron ore producers, and, and this is one of these interesting things where, you, you know, a, a story can be 90% on one side and 10% on the other. But one of the big producers of iron ore is Australia. Mm-hmm. And one of the places in the world where you can make green hydrogen, hopefully one day for a reasonable cost, is Western Australia. Mm-hmm. So a lot of iron ore that might be shipped to other places right now for processing from Australia will probably be processed in Australia using green hydrogen to make I'm, hot briquetted iron. So don't, I'm not, I, not disagreeing with that at all. My point is yeah. that the economics drive local processing more than they do today. With energy costs going up, for sure. And we agree 100%. Fuel costs. Shipping is going to get a lot higher, now the, uh, the regardless se- of what they do. Now, you and I have started a disagreement on this, but neither of us has the numbers yet. You know, So I'll, I'll, I'll articulate this as one of the last minutes. We'll probably need to close this out because I need to go get lunch. <laughs> but the articulation I make is that you know, uh, around 2,000, 70% of all steel consumed in the United States went through electric steel mini mills. Yep. That was then uh, China started importing massive amounts of iron ore and coal to manufacture steel cheaply and glutted the market and killed all the electric steel mini mills. So there's very few electric steel mini mills working in other places, scrapping compared to what was happening before. So now I I thought they were, I thought they were still going. I thought the mini mill thing was still a big thing, but I, I, I'm not very well. No, a significant change in the market. You know, we had massive amounts of steel coming in from China and steel components and stuff like that. And of course, with manufacturing going offshore, a bunch of stuff that ends up being processed into manufactured objects, steel objects comes back on ships as well, higher yeah. value stuff. Yeah. And the point though, is that China gets away with that because importing tons of coal and tons of iron ore, millions and millions of tons and making steel and then shipping it back out is an eco- uh, works with the economies of treating the atmosphere and the ocean as open sewers. Correct. It does. As soon as we have to increase, as we as soon as we increase the cost of shipping, then the shipping loads shift very heavily to more highly processed goods and stuff. They won't go away, 
you know, because right now the, you know, the cost of my iPhone in terms of shipping from wherever it is, is a fraction of the hundreds of dollars of the iPhone. So it's, and, you know, high uh, vegetables coming up from Chile or whatever like that, similar type of thing. The value of those cargoes is much higher. But when you're talking bulk cargoes that are cheap, cheap, dirt, cheap commodity per ton, then the economics substantially change. My assertion is we'll go more towards electric steel mini mills, more towards local manufacturing of more highly processed goods, less shipping as well. But we're still going to see an increase in overall in some in the, the goods shipping on the container side of the business of manufactured objects and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I think that I think that labor is still a very significant factor. So I, I think that when you compare the cost of labor for local manufacture versus the cost of shipping, that shipping wins. So I, I think that unless China uh, China's fundamental economic proposition changes like people in China start organizing and demanding higher pay and you know the Chinese government changes completely and no longer can just step on people with a boot and say you're not going to do that that I think I, I think that it's a little bit of a hard sell I, no, I hope you're right I hope you're right okay Michael yeah, I agree with you that I, I, I think that's a, a thing to wish for but I don't know for sure that I believe it. And as far as goods are concerned, I think there a lot of things are going to change. But one of the things that's going to change that I, I see quite clearly is that right now, because energy is cheap, we, we use energy as a proxy for better organization. So you see these absurd things where cheap labor, you, you know, uh, fish, are proce- uh, fish are caught in one place and then they're partially processed in another place that's really quite distant. And then they're marketed in yet a further away place. And you, you, you see these kind of absurd supply chains that jump all over the earth. And that, that's facilitated by cheap energy. And I agree with you, that's coming to an end and, and for the better, like, you know, for yeah. the betterment of the world, for sure, that the I, I also see and agree, and agree with you that that in an energy a future when fossil CO2 emissions are expensive, that the recycling rate of a lot of materials, steel being one of them, I mean, steel is one of the most highly recycled materials that we work with, and that's for the great betterment of humankind, the, uh, th- that recycling will become more more prevalent and, and it, it'll make more economic sense. And so people will do more of it. And that will bring back in, in a sense, those mini mills to, to make steel for local consumption, for instance, rather than transporting it. If you have to transport the scrap to China and then you have to transport the finished steel back to North America and the mill that did the steel making is mostly automated. So the labor cost of all of that is minimal. There's no value proposition anymore. You just do it locally. The mini mill melts the scrap. You throw in some hot briquetted iron that came from Australia. And with CO2 costs being really high, that material is worth a lot. And your end product ends up not being transported nearly as much. It's made much closer to market. That all sounds quite logical. Yeah, and that's kind of the point. We are automating everything. And you know, so the, it's going to be a different world. And one, one of the things I, I, I'm going to do sometime this year is do a global tons of steel manufacturing and some of those shipment places. So I can have a projection of that bulk commodity through 2100 again to kind of articulate at least something more than us waving our arms 
I'll actually have numbers by decade so that we can argue more specifically and usefully, which is and what I'll I- will go out on a limb on another one. And this this will be interesting to see if it, see if I uh, have uh, landed in the right place in the future. But it seems to me, because of what I know of aluminum manufacture, mm -hmm. that aluminum is easier to decarbonize than steel is. And as a consequence of that, mm -hmm. I think that per, not per pound, but per unit of strength, which is ultimately what we need structural materials. Right now, the differential in cost between aluminum and steel is mm -hmm. quite high with aluminum costing a lot more because right now, the biggest chunk of the cost of aluminum is the cost of electricity to do the electrolytic refining, yep. to do the reduction. And in the future, if we have to do something really complicated, like use electricity to make hydrogen in order to reduce iron ore because we can't do it with coke anymore from coal, now aluminum competing with that by a direct electrolytic process that's been well developed for, for the past 70, 80 years, it's going to have a, 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 much, a much more exciting future. And even on the front end side, so in order to make aluminum, you have to make alumina, aluminum oxide from bauxite or a similar mineral. And that process is really uh, quite nasty and, and it has some calcining and uh, other steps in it that are done with fossil fuels right now. But mm -hmm. those steps can be decarbonized too. And without quite so much difficulty as replacing the, the blast furnace in, mm -hmm. in steel. So I, I think aluminum is going to be, you know, I, I, that's the way I'm feeling. And, yeah, and, I I, I, and you and I have, um, you know, disagreed without seeing numbers on the percentage of scrapping of, uh, of, of the fossil fuel over. infrastructure. Yes. Feeding yeah. <laughs> <laughs> swords into plowshares. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Now we are at the top of the, the, the period. Um, so we yep. should probably hang up. I'm going to do the all, standard open-ended thing. I mean, we're talking okay. about the hydrogen science coalition. That was the, impetus for us to have this conversation. Sure. We've had a, a long and broad conversation over hydrogen and we diverged into uh, shipping and some other areas. You know, if you had one thing to say to policymakers and the people who have their ears from a hydrogen science coalition perspective, you know, what would it be? What three things or two things would you want them to take away? Oh, sure. So the first one is it's as simple as a Drake meme. So in one panel of the Drake meme, we have Drake wincing and, and averting, uh, averting his gaze. And in that panel, it says hydrogen as a fuel. So policymakers should wince and avert their gaze whenever anyone mentions hydrogen as a fuel. But in the next panel, Drake is nodding with approval and, and, uh, and, and pointing with approval. And the, uh, the panel reads, green hydrogen to replace black hydrogen. And so those are the sorts of projects that the policymakers should be pursuing. And I do, I do have to admit a little bit of, of pleasure on a personal basis because I had a role in one such, uh, one such thing that came forward in the, in, in the recent past. And that is a company, a client of mine named Monolith Materials was recently uh, granted a, a tentative approval for a one billion U.S. dollar loan from the United States uh, Department of Energy for their their project, which takes natural gas and decomposes it using nuclear electricity 
to make carbon black, which is a valuable reinforcing material that's used in rubber goods like tires. And they make hydrogen as a byproduct, which they make into ammonia, which displaces black ammonia from the marketplace. And their plant happens to be within 100 miles of 40% of the ammonia users in the United States. It's a fabulous project. It is not total decarbonization of, of black hydrogen, but very good, very low CO2 per, per unit of hydrogen produced, with carbon black now being made from natural gas rather than from a very dirty, polluting, emissive, and CO2 emissive process that is used right now, which is uh, making it from heavy oil. So I, I love to see that, and that's a perfect example. It'll never be the overwhelming way by which hydrogen is made, but it's a nice niche and, and a very good one, and, and some very smart people on Monolith's side that came up with that process. The other thing that I would say is no to hydrogen blending because hydrogen blending is hydrogen as a fuel. And no to hydrogen for transport because hydrogen is fundamentally inefficient and ineffective as a transport fuel. It's both. And that's it. That, that's all I would want to get across. And if they wanted the detail, then I'd refer them to my articles where everything is laid out and, and spelled out and calculated and demonstrated. Yeah, and that's h2sciencecoalition.com is the you know, website of the coalition. And okay. so, you know, Paul and Bernard and Tom and David and Johan are, are all listed there. And so, you know, for people in the press um, who've been following along, you can reach out to them, connect to them through there as well. That's right. Okay, Paul, always a pleasure. Thank you for coming on Clean Tech Talks again. We'll have you on in another year or so and see how uh, H2 Science Coalition, if you, if you think you've moved the needle, and I hope you have. So I, I hope we have too. And uh, thanks again, Michael. It's always a pleasure. Okay, take care. All right, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks.